1: Welcome to Primal Screen, a show about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. I'm Flick Ford and joining me in the studio is Lisa Kovacevic. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Flick. Good to be back. And we've also got Will Cox on the line. Hey, Will.
2: G'day. How are you doing?
1: Very well. Very well. So we're spotlighting Australian dramas that are currently streaming free to air we'll traverse 3 different time periods. We're going to open up with New Gold Mountain about the gold rushes of the 1850s. Then we'll jump ahead to 1986 for the cutthroat world of commercial television news in the ABC drama The Newsreader, and we'll finish the freshly finish with the freshly released six-part drama series Fires, which details the impact of the horrific bushfires that ravaged Australia in 2019 and 2020. So New Gold Mountain is a new four-part series that was released on SBS On Demand last week, created by Peter Cox, directed by Cory Chen and executive produced by Kaylee, Kylie Dufresne. It is set in Ballarat Goldfields in 1855 and the series presents a very different take on the infamous gold rush years. Focusing on a Chinese mining camp and their charismatic headman Shing, played by Yosun An, tensions come to the fore when the body of a white woman is discovered at the camp.
3: Your husband. He was considered important. Amongst some. A great man, people would say. Many still do.
1: And in private. He
3: was not the same. Men do not love things. They only fear losing what they have. From the outside, it looks the same until you learn. And joining us
1: is the director of New Gold Mountain, Cory Chen. Welcome to Primal Screen, Cory. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, firstly, congratulations on the show. It premiered just this week or last week. You've obviously received yeah. a lot of, lot of uh, good, good feedback so far.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, the support from both, you know, the audiences and the industry has been really tremendous and far bigger than, you know, anything that we could have imagined and it's been, to be honest, really quite moving uh, for this show to be, you know, so um, well-accepted.
1: Yeah, it seems – so I was really – I felt like I knew a lot about the gold rush coming into this show and then I feel like I've learnt quite a lot over the course of, of this four-part series. Firstly, I was one of the things I, I had no awareness of was the um, anti-Asian Buckland riot, um, which was a racial attack by white miners against about 2,000 um, miners within the the Chinese community, which happened in Buckland in Victoria. Um, there's so much in this. How how did you even come to talking about this story? Like, did, was there a huge amount of research that went into this?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the story had been in development for uh, about a year by the time I came on board. And certainly even once I was on board, there was a historian that was readily available to us, a couple of historians actually. And also they read the scripts and pointed out, what um, uh, was or wasn't accurate for the era, or for um, for the story of you know people from different minority groups. But um, they, uh, a lot of the time, what was interesting because you know in the end we're not making a documentary; we're making a, um, a murder mystery. So it was uh, as a team sifting through. Um, What is the facts of history um, and the details of that and distilling it down to what is still definitely very authentic, but um, uh, through the lens of uh, storytelling. Mm. There's a
0: lot of minority groups throughout the, the, the series, there's, um, you know, there's the Indigenous community, there's the Chinese community. What was um, – and there's a lot of other migrants. It's just, it's just populated with migrants, which it was at that time. There's the Irish migrants, which suffer their own sort of racism. There's immigrants from America, which I actually found surprising. I didn't know that that, that happened, that there was a thing when the gold rush had ended there, they migrated over here. What was What was important about telling this story from a Chinese perspective?
3: It's uh, really interesting that you – I'm really happy that you mentioned the different minority groups because that was something that uh, Kylie, the producer, and I really wanted to try and populate, even just in the sonic landscape of it. So, you know, we we did have a cast of over 65 speaking characters, like decent-sized roles, Um, and and part of the casting brief when we worked with um, Jane Norris, our casting director, was that we really wanted people to um, speak in their – their original accents and just adopt um, and finally, you know, embrace the accent of their homeland. And like there were so many um, uh, miners from um, like Hungary and Poland and, you know, a lot of um, different parts of uh, Europe that isn't just the Anglo-Saxon side of it that we've been really um, familiar with. So, yeah, we really opened it up and tried to embrace that uh, as well. But, you know, Certainly, for me, the gold rush, like, I mean, like many Asian Australians and also just many um, kids, because when you learn about it in primary school, it's something that it's so easy to be captivated by. It's just such an adventure, for, for better mm-hmm. or worse. But certainly, as a child, you're sold that um, myth that it was this like open plains and you can just like, you know, come and take anything you wanted without consequences, which as an adult, obviously, is a complete lie. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, yeah, and I guess, um, personally, it was the first time that when I learned about it, or even saw any paintings or sketches of that era, that I was able to see someone who vaguely looked like me in Australian history.
0: Yeah, it's funny you talk about childhood, because watching this, I felt a strange sense of nostalgia as well. And in primary school, they made us do, you know, plays about uh, the First Fleet and stuff. But, I mean, so much was written out of that history back then. This is the 1980s when I was going to primary school um, and they took us to Sovereign Hill and it was such a um, magical place to go to as a child because it's it's like a living history <laughs> uh, and a living set. Mm-hmm. And I was so... Um, watching the series I was like I hope that they film this at Sovereign Hill because as a kid I remember and a fan of film I remember thinking someone has to use this as a backdrop it's like a living set it's incredible (laughs) and and I was so thrilled to find out that you did shoot there is that right?
3: Yeah yeah definitely we were able to spend close to two weeks there um, more than what we had uh, originally budgeted for but because of COVID they were shut the whole time so they were kind of like you know, they needed us as much as we needed them. And it was, it was fantastic. And, you know, much like you, I went as a kid and then also as an adult, because it's just a fantastic day trip to go to. Um, And uh, uh, yeah, it was, it's better than a backlot actually, because um, every shop you go into is actually fully dressed and, you know, fully wallpapered. And so we really had uh, the entire run of the place. It was, yeah, it was pretty magical. And actually, I remember on our last day there, um, during our lunchtime, they had opened up all the shops so we could go shopping and buy our <laughs> Christmas presents. And, uh, <laughs> that was pretty amazing. You
0: did your bit for regional Victoria in that on that day, I reckon. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, because we went, um, the whole cast and crew basically went from the Melbourne lockdown straight into um, a very, very intense and challenging shoot. So it was like the first time we were able to, really do any shopping (laughs) the first time in four or five months and yeah everyone just had their hands full of boxes and bags. It's so impressive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's impressive shooting in lockdown. I'm I'm amazed that we've that Australian has been able to produce all this content of late. It's really cool.
1: Absolutely. I've heard um I I've been such a big fan of yours through all the different work you've done and it's it's a lot for me to cover but You've described your role as, the shifting, as shifting the needle of culture in this country through our stories, and I think about some of the stories that you have been at the forefront of. You directed Homecoming Queens, which is a semi-autobiographical comedy drama, which won a whole heap of awards. Um, you've also um, directed the Emmy-nominated Mustangs FC. Um, you've also worked in children's television drama, um, you also directed Went- an episode of Wentworth um, for the final, final season of that. And, of course, um, one of our favourites, Sea Change as well. Like it's such a diverse <laughs> storytelling that you have. Can you just talk us through, I suppose, your career and what's kind of drawn you to those, those subjects?
3: Yeah, no, I sound pretty um pretty wild when you're just <laughs> listing my IMDb. Out like like I'm like oh yeah there's no common thread throughout any of those projects. Um uh I feel like I uh there's always the, the projects that I you know come on board on there's there's always a very very specific reason in that in the time that I decide that, you know, I'm um, attracted to a certain project. And, you know, Mustangs, like, kids' TV will always have a very special place in my heart. It's how I learned English, and with, with Mustangs, it was my first um, my first job as a director, and from that, you know, my career really opened up to me. Um, Homecoming Plains is really uh, the, one of the many projects that Michelle Law, who's one of the co- co-creators, Um, and I have, and it's really a very important relationship and collaboration in my life. And certainly thematically to look at, um, it's, again, sort of speaking to what it uh, means to be an Asian-Australian, a young Asian-Australian woman, and for Michelle it's, you know, her life story, and I really wanted to be part of presenting that Mm. to to the world and um, I think it was the first SBS um, short form digital series. So we kind of knew that and was told um, that if it was, you know, if it went well and was successful, it's sort of opening up a model for um, later generations, which it now has done and I'm very proud to have been a part of that, Mm. of opening up that portal Um, and uh yeah and with Wentworth I mean I, I was just really desperate to do some stunts and work with <laughs> this enormous um amazing cast as well and you don't get to do stunts <laughs> very often you know definitely in Australia and like yeah there's there's some shivving going on in that prison <laughs> Uh, th- th- just on that, um,
0: talking about stunts and cin- like the, the approach to um, the cinema language that you use, I, I was really impressed by the use of the diopter lenses that you've used in um, New Gold Mountain, which is what we're talking about tonight, and um, I just wondered how you came to that, and if you could talk listeners through what they are and, and, and how they achieved that look that you have done so in this series and why you chose to use them.
3: Yeah, the split diopter is a uh, um, in. Very basic language. It's an extra piece of glass that you put in front of the lens, which brings um, uh, everything in the shot into into focus. Which is really unsettling to see because that's not that's not how our eyes function. So, um, I it's quite a you know a famous trick that a lot of filmmakers adopt. um, Most specifically Brian De Palma does it a lot. Uh, And I was reminded of it because I was watching um, the HBO series Watchmen and they had utilised it a couple of times really, really effectively. And there was one brilliant episode where um, it sort of crosses between a couple of different timelines. And um, I, I was just so struck by how I was able to decide where I wanted to look in the frame. But... Also I wasn't because it was um like I felt like I was in control of where my eyes were looking, but I completely was not. The director was in control of where my eyes were looking. And I kind of just love that trickery that um we're asking the audience to do and um and in this in New Gold Mountain, especially in episodes two and three, it's used quite a bit. And uh, and funnily enough I realized um as as we started um to lean into it that it often saved us time on set because I sort of started to really adopt it as a as a visual language in that instead of, because, um, you know, really commonly the um, television language is, you know, shot, reverse, shot, and that's the rhythm in which you cut in the scene, but uh, with the if I blocked it in a certain way it meant that you know people could have conversations with their backs to each other sort of facing camera but it played into a really like you start to ask like why are they withholding certain things why aren't they turning and um certainly between Xing and Lei that was a very effective uh uh tone to lean into
1: I was thinking with, um, you know, there's been so much... I remember reading this, this article that, in an interview with you recently where you were talking a lot about um, being voiceless, feeling voiceless for a lot of your early 20s. And I just feel listening to you talk about all of the artistry that's gone into New Gold Mountain and how much you've thought through all of the camera angles and the characters and the, the stories, both historical and also within this, this TV series that you're bringing together... I'm just so aware of kind of your skill as a storyteller, and something that stands out to me is um, your performance at Queer Stories um, for the Sydney Writers Festival back in 2019. And in that in that um, presentation, you talked about um, your the way in which you have chosen the path of most resistance, being a filmmaker instead of a lawyer, gay instead of straight, and this kind of this. I'm just curious as to how that plays into your to your filmmaking.
3: Um, that's a very good question. <laughs> how do I answer that other than through therapy? I was just thinking <laughs> the same thing. I was like, "Welcome to Flick's therapy
0: couch." <laughs> no, I, was, I was, I suppose more specifically. So, I suppose what I
1: was thinking is just like this idea of. Of not I suppose like if you're talking about spending all your 20s feeling voiceless and having all of this stuff of working out your identity you know this kind of feeling of tension and feeling as though um, you talk a lot about um, you know the burden and responsibility of the immig- immigrant child is to atone and you talk about this sacrifice and this the, the loneliness um, and how it um, you want to pro- your the parents want to provide a better better life for their children and I just thought there's something to that in what you're bringing to New Gold Mountain because part of it is is kind of working through all of that that you're you're bringing that to the show and I just thought that sense of storytelling of claiming a voice in this and and actually using film as a means to to create that voice so yeah yeah
3: yeah. and I think you know it's hard to not Sometimes I, um, you know, when when I'm feeling a little bit glass half empty about all of my decisions, I think, oh, what a self-indulgent way to try and work myself out by in a very public forum, which is through filmmaking, <laughs> and how privileged is that that I've been able to do that. But um, I, I do think it's interesting in that, you know, I think a lot about my – early twenties when I was at VCA and stuff, and I, you know, I found directing so hard and being on set so hard. In that, like, you know, when you're directing on set, you're effectively speaking to fifty to seventy people, right, on a daily basis and ordering them what to do, and that's that was terrifying mm. in my in my twenties. And um, but so much of that is linked to, you know, not just race, but like t- learning about, like, you know. Uh, coming to terms with how to come out and when to come out and even accepting that I need it to come out. Um, So I feel like the more I have been able to reach into that part of myself, the easier um, speaking up has become. And uh, new gold is really, I feel like, um, the result of all of that work and it is work to try and figure yourself out and uh, and put it into um your creative outlet and you know I, I i'm just in a stage now where i can't help but feel there's you know life before new gold mountain and life after <laughs> new gold mountain um and which is inspiring but also scary <laughs>
1: Well, I'm I'm very excited to to um, see what happens next for you in your career. It's been yeah, as you said, a very diverse uh, career so far, yeah.
3: and lots of amazing work. Yeah, what, when I say diversity, I mean in genre as well. Yeah. That's what I believe. That's in.
0: right. Are you working <laughs> yeah. on anything at the moment, Corey? That's coming. Uh,
3: I I am. I'm doing uh, directing a new series for Stan, which is a four by another four by one hour miniseries. Um. Uh, based on the memoir Bad Behavior, uh, which is set in a girls' boarding school.
1: Amazing! We've been speaking with the director of New Gold Mountain, Cory Chen. New Gold Mountain is streaming now on SBS On Demand. Thank you so much for your time, Cory.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R.
2: Triple R on FM, and digital, digital, online, via the app.
1: You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Lisa Kovacevic, Will Cox and myself, Flick Ford. We're spotlighting Aussie dramas that are currently streaming free to air. We opened with New Gold Mountain and chatted with director Corey Chen. And now we're crossing from 1850s gold rush to a Melbourne newsroom in 1986 for the ABC drama The Newsreader.
2: Just don't do it. The other thing that I'll say is that... You need to slow um, down
3: or there'll be dead air at the end. I'll try to move the queue a little slower. Try and follow
2: me. Is that... Uh, we are back. We're going to make a limited amount of tickets available.
0: That was a very funny scene from ABC's <laughs> The Newsroom, um, which is really a complex relationship drama set in the maelstrom of a commercial newsroom in 1986. It follows the young, ambitious and somewhat naive journalist Dale Jennings, who you just heard there, played by Sam Reed, he, as he was racing through his first news read, and who desperately wants to be permanently behind the news desk. Uh, Dale finds an ally in Helen Norville, played by Anna Torv, who is behind the new de- news desk. The station's flagship female. Newsreader Helen really wants to be taken seriously as a journalist. However, her ideas are constantly being undermined or overlooked by their boss Lindsay, played by William McGuinness, who shouts his way through the newsroom on a daily basis, (laughs) and her co host, the aging stalwart Jeff Walters, played by Robert Taylor, who is battling against illness and retirement. Helen and Dale are an unlikely pairing, but over the course of the few months that the series is set, they really come to grow together. And the few months that the series is set are just jam packed with events of the time it's set in 1986 as I mentioned um so much happened so (laughs) much I don't remember I mean I was five at the time but Lindsay Chamberlain case, Bourke Street bombings, the AIDS epidemic and the surrounding bigotry. Actually
1: I looked it up because I was like not sure that all of these things were accurate it was true it's true though right Haley's Comet
0: uh Chernobyl uh (laughs) some royal wedding puff pieces like the marriage of Fergie and Prince Andrew yes who knew so much happened in 1986 Will where were you in 1986? I, don't think Will uh, I was, was born. not yet. Born. You were. You were. You were a glint <laughs> in the milkman's eye. I was. Yeah. I'm Afraid so. But um. Yeah. I mean. I think maybe we
2: think after the last couple of years that absolutely nothing happened until about 2019. That's
0: right. But,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was quite surprised at the sheer amount of it and the variety of it too. I can see why they chose 86.
0: Yeah. Mm.
2: Um. And there's plenty more in the 80s if you go you go on a bit of a dive. There's plenty more towards the end of the 80s. Um. For a future series i don't know yeah I definitely so. i quite enjoyed it
0: yes it was an interesting yeah period in australia's history because it was sort of the first time we were finding ourselves as a nation that we weren't considered this outpost of mm. the of britain um I think I think Keating and um, uh, Hawke had a lot to do with that.
1: Absolutely, uh, yeah. a, and then
0: cultural figures like Paul Hogan <laughs> selling us to the Americans <laughs> with shrimps mm. on the Barbie. Well, the yeah. newsreader
1: starts with Paul Hogan, it which does. I think is a great way to set up that whole uh, Australiana um, that really kicked off, kind of in the nineteen eighties. You know that kind of level of of Australian pride, I suppose. Um, the, the it's Ken
2: Doan sense of Australian pride.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: That's a great way precisely. to put it. Yeah, yeah. I have a, I, very, I was,
2: sorry, what were we going to say, Will? Oh, no, I was just going to say the, um, the, the way that, that um, picking that time period, when, when Australia is still very parochial, really, you yeah. know, and still very kind of uh, conservative, but is slowly waking up to itself. Um, That's a great a way. way to we put still it. are. Yeah, we still are doing. <laughs> yes,
1: that. we're still I, going
2: through that. Well, but things like sexuality uh, and, and gender discussions within the show—it's it's a really fascinating time because people are open, but it's also extremely.
0: Project. It's such a contradiction, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Because yeah. And because it's set with these newsreaders at the front um, who themselves, Helen, the main character played by Anna Torv, um, presents a very Yarn Event uh, persona yeah. with the deeply spoken authoritative, you know, authoritative, I can't say the word, voice of a female yeah. uh, in that time, but then... You know, close the doors, and she's suffering really serious anxiety because yeah. she's battling against all these men that don't want to legitimise well, her career.
1: And you get the sense she's a, she is an outlier. You know, she she. It was really rare for women to be in those roles, and it's interesting going back to that time. Like you were saying, Will, I feel like Australia. We're kind of at this, <laughs> we're saying this as though we've made much improvement, but like realistically well, that's right. we yeah. haven't. I think that's yeah. actually something that stood out to me was that we still have this tendency to favour the voices of uh, cis white old men on news stations and that happens a lot in commercial radio and so many female newsreaders have spoken about the amount of harassment they've had or being paid a completely different amount to their male counterparts. So um, we talk about it as though, oh, that was the 80s. But I think something that's really interesting about this time period and I remember being – I was born in the 80s and I remember – we used to have these t-shirts that we all wore saying g'day from WA. (laughs) It's like this real sense of tapping into Australia as a, as a tourist, like a uh, tourist, you know, like, destination. Yeah, tourist destination. Yeah. I think Crocodile Dundee, <clears throat> all of those movies, like they had a big part in that. But and we the exploitation to cinema yeah. cinema of the time, yeah. too,
0: your Razorback type films, your yeah. Mad Max. That they kind all of thing. came out
1: around the eighties and did. it was it was a huge boom in terms of cinema, but also with newsreading kind of taking a shift away from that British um, Newsreading style.
0: It's true. You know the yeah, character yeah. I find really interesting. Um, sorry to cut you off. Will um, is um, is, okay. is was a brilliant stroke of casting actually, and that's Mark Downey as the wife of um, Jeff, who is the, the the sort of the flagship station anchorman, um, who is you know on his way out, and you know is representative of of that cis white man on yeah. his dying and on his way out. But she really is, is holding him up. She's propping him she's up. She's the puppet
1: master. She's the puppet master
0: <laughs> and she's a woman. And that's sort of mm. where she's carved out her um, place in this world. And, mm. um, and she doesn't want to give it up. You know, she's, she's wearing the designer clothes mm. and she plays it so understated as well. She's marvelous in the role. She's
1: very, um, she's very qui- like quietly villainous, yes. which I really loved about her performance. The scenes in this um, where, she just stares down Helen as you know, Helen comes along to the 60th birthday party wearing a tight-fitting dress. Yeah. And just the way that her their eyes meet, where you can see how nervous Helen is and you just see how much power
0: yes this older yeah. woman yeah. has over yeah, her. Absolutely,
1: yeah. It's really the power dynamics in this are fascinating. Um I thought the newsreader, I didn't know what to expect. I actually thought it was going to be a bit more jokey. Yeah. I mean, it has got some hilarious moments in it, but I was also surprised. By particularly Dale's kind of story, mm. I was surprised by how moved I and how emotionally involved I got in that and and his relationship with Helen is really intriguing as well
0: it is yeah, and um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler because it comes out really in the first episode, isn't it that, that about Dale's no, it doesn't. I'm getting the I'm getting the shaking of the head. I'm <laughs> about just, to drop um, a spoiler. Yeah, again. All right, let's
1: not. We try All to right. avoid spoilers. All right, least, I'm not going to go. No, I won't yeah. go there. Then no, we have giving you a taster of okay. exciting uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> intrigue. Well, I think yeah, the character of Dale Jennings is. Um, I wouldn't say duplicitous, but he, he's having to, like Helen, project something into the world that he is not um, because he needs to function and operate within it. And it comes at a real cost p- to his um, pers- personally, you know. And, um, yeah, I think that that's a really fascinating uh, taught story that they've, mm. they've put together really well. I wanted to, to mention the aesthetics of the show too because I thought it was really interesting because the past sort of decade or even more there's been this real um, – shift towards nostalgic cinema of the 80s. I mean, Mm. contemporary films that are set in the 80s that are really trying to appeal to the Gen Xs or the boomers that lived through that time... um, And I find a lot of those films, not all of them, but a lot of them sort of lean into the MTV version of the 80s, which is mm. like big hair, bright colours, totally. Madonna. Um, whereas that wasn't really the, that was one version, but that was a really hyper real version of it. Um, and then there's this other version, like uh, it's a more of a nostalgic approach, approach to the cinema of the time. So I think like if you start watching, say, Stranger Things, you can't help but think of the Goonies or mm. E.T. when those kids are riding on their mongoose bikes in the back streets of suburbia, you know, and it takes you back. Back there um but there's something about the aesthetic of this which I thought was um really commendable they 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 downplay it it felt like I was in the 80s like it almost felt like a series made in the 80s not a series about the 80s you know that's
1: a great way of putting it as well because like unless it's going to be anchored to characters that you care about and actual like narratives that are meaningful Yes, the aesthetic is nothing there. That's <laughs> so right. You can't just rest a six-part series on aesthetic
0: alone. No, so. no. It was nice that it um, it lent into a, um, a really modest colour palette. So it's lots of beiges and soft mm. pinks, and that's what I remember my mother wearing. And <laughs> um, and even the set design, you know, they're not. It's not a house that's just full of eighties paraphernalia, because yeah. an eighties house wouldn't be full of eighties. 80s eighties 80s houses would have had like crockery from the fifties and sixties that they'd inherited from their mother. And there's a, there's a real authenticity. There, that, that yeah. carries through the aesthetic of this show, that I really appreciated. I really liked it. Although, our, um, our panel operator, Carl, said to me, Yeah, but they should have shot it in four by three. Then it would have really felt like <laughs> the 80s. And I thought, We well, a fair point. Season two? Season two. Four by three, <laughs> four by three and
2: on an extremely low grade video. Video, tape. that's right. <laughs> and then yeah. I'd be convinced. <laughs> that's that's um, Did you see the film a few years ago? I'm sorry, I'm just going to drag it straight off the newsreader immediately. Did you see the film a few years ago, Swinging Safari, the Stephen Elliott film?
0: No.
1: I haven't seen
2: that, the, no. No? Okay. Well, it's an Australian um, period drama set in the 70s and it does the exact opposite as far as you're saying about the aesthetic in that um, I spoke to Stephen Elliott about it when it came out and he said that they looked at a lot of photos from the 70s, photos from old family albums and things, and they remembered everything being hypercolor, and they were really disappointed when they looked at the images that everything was kind of drab and brown and plastic. Um, oh. And so they went out of their way to heighten that and because it, that up,
0: because it was memory, their memory of it yeah, was different. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. interesting.
2: I, yeah. I, I don't I don't I agree that that this is a far more satisfying approach. Yeah. Um, because it really it, does feel, you know, like the, the mid eighties. And and the news set as well, you know, the, the the news uh broadcast set feels extremely correct. It feels right. Yeah, you know, actually. This, this
1: I was reminded a bit of um, Frontline. Do you yeah, remember Yeah, uh, me too, yeah, yeah. that kind of um, insight into kind of the behind the scenes where they give off this, pol- you know, newsreaders so often have this really polished veneer and like one of the lovely, like the best things to watch on YouTube is those like newsreader fails or, mm, you know, because mm. there's something about that, Being broken and, you know, having a behind the scenes is almost the same thing of that YouTube um, fails because you're seeing into the real person and all the work that goes in there and all the performance. And then we've got the doubling of Helen and Dale. Performing in their own ways, so it's a it's a beautiful Mm. setup, really. Like it feels very well thought out.
2: It does. I love the way that um, that that Helen's character is is so put together on screen and is sort of you know falling apart off screen. Yeah. But I did think that maybe we could have seen more of her on screen. That fierce sort of interview persona. Mm. Because if you go on YouTube, though, you mentioned Yarn Event before. Mm. If Mm. you look up some of Yarn Event's nineteen eighties interviews, they're quite. Incredible. Her interviewing Joe bielke Peterson, uh, and she's just absolutely unflappable. She's just straight down the line, terrifying, frankly. And I don't know how he managed. Well, he doesn't keep it together. Really, he just crumbles under the pressure.
0: You know what's funny? And then man?
2: yes. Oh, go ahead. and then uh, follow the YouTube link and uh, Warren and find. Uh, Marg Downey. Oh,
0: that's what I was about on, to say. Yeah, it's yeah, so meta. On, it's so meta. Fast
2: forward. <laughs> yes, playing Yarn event. event. She's
0: in, she's incredible mm. at it. And actually, yeah. her her performance in this even sort of draws on a little bit of that steeliness in it. It's it's which yeah. is kind of hilarious, yeah. but it's just, it's a bit of a mind f you know, like <laughs> because, yeah, because the characters are jumping all over the place. But yeah, they they it's it, it's true. Yeah, the um the female characters in this are yeah really interesting. And like you said, we'll would have been nice to see a bit more of that, um, yeah. perhaps from Anatov's character. Torv
2: absolutely nailed the the, the voice, yarn event. Yeah, the yes. voice yep. and the, that persona. Whereas I don't think Robert Taylor was a convincing newsreader at all. No, he mm. was so low energy and slow. Yes, you know, and you felt like the the, the words are dying between. You know, he's sort of reading and this is the news but
0: so that's, like, a, that's that's not really but what it's like I actually think
1: I think though that there were a few newsreaders like that I agree up. Like, and I feel oh, like really? some, yeah some of the some of the male anchors honestly were just would just the sort Brian of, nailers and yeah stuff like, that. like really mumble through stuff and you're like mm, but I, okay. I
0: think that's the point here too because there's also another character who's just a sports journalist and he by his own admission says <laughs> all I know about is footy I can talk footy 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 for hours but like nothing else but he keeps getting like all these doors keep opening for him because yeah. he's this like young white Good-looking guy, Um, and he's just like, oh God! Now I have to interview someone about AIDS, and I don't know anything. I don't want to do this, but it doesn't matter for him. For him, it's just like it's just this elevation, this constant elevation. I thought that was really good. I
1: think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The newsreader definitely has some really interesting um, insight into workplace harassment as Mm. well, and just that kind of dynamic, like you said, of who gets selected for the top role. Yeah, Um, it is. It is pretty cutthroat. It comes across, but it also is a world that very much favours a particular you know, white cis male.
0: The the other thing I thought was interesting, I still don't know, I'm still processing it, but is the casting. So um, you have like a a, a very... um culturally diverse cast of people in the newsroom and I just wonder is that accurate of the mm. 80s like it may have look it might be but you've got like a Sri Lankan producer that's a pretty that's a pretty senior yeah, role true. Um, you have like a South Korean assistant um, there's a, a Thai Australian cameraman um, I love seeing I love seeing that representation in Australian screen um, but 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 for them to have these some of them have like some power uh, particularly yeah. the producer mm. Uh, the Australian producer, and I thought I don't know, like how that sat with me. It that's, felt like rewriting yeah. history a little bit, that's but could I be one. wrong?
1: Yeah, I think that comes up a lot, though. In te- you know, current shows about a different period, I know. where there's a question of representation, yes. and there's also a question of is that real? Yeah, I feel as though there's enough engagement with the racial politics of that time, and, you know, continuing yeah, to, today. To not as though it's over, but it. yeah, it's a good point. Flea. I, I yeah. think that it allows for that. I think if they just had everyone white and had said like, oh, but that's what it was like. I mean, that's not really engaging with no. It. It's, I mean, a,
2: it's a fiction anyway, and I think yeah. the representation probably outweighs uh, the the, impo- the realism, you
1: know, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Realism. I in think this so. case. Yeah, yeah, I um, agree. If you want to check it out, the newsreader is currently streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, triple R 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Lisa Kovacevic, Will Cox, and myself, Flick Ford. We're spotlighting Australian dramas that are currently streaming free to air on ABC and SBS. Um, look, many of us will remember the summer of 2019 2020 in which a series of intense bushfires ripped through most of southeast Australia. Um, our city was later shrouded in thick smoke um, our air quality dropped to hazardous levels um, indeed across southern and eastern states and we wore masks to protect our lungs and, and be able to get around without get on with our days this was time to- this time is known as the black summer and these bushfires destroyed about 18.6 million hectares they destroyed over 5,900 buildings including 2779 homes and they killed at least 34 people. More than a billion animals were killed in Black Summer, the vast majority being reptiles, and some endangered species were driven to extinction. There have been a handful of documentaries on the Black Summer and about three weeks ago the ABC released the first in a six-part TV anthology series titled Fires and here is a short clip of it now.
3: What? Did you read across that? Yeah, we heard it. Get the fire blanket, uh, just in case.
1: Got it. It's coming on the left.
3: Is this normal? Is this
1: that was Hunter Page Lachard and Eliza Scanlon. Um, but, look, there's a whole heap more people involved in this anthology. Will, can you tell us a bit more about the team who created this anthology?
2: Yeah, sure. Created by Tony Ayres, who uh, made uh, Nowhere Boys a few years ago, co-created created with uh, Belinda Chaco. directed by Michael Reimer, Anna Kockinas, um, Kim Morden, and written by a, a team of about half a dozen. I think they took on one or two episodes each. And the cast is big too. You oh, mentioned Eliza Scanlon and Hyder Page Lashard, who we just heard. Yeah. Miranda Otto, Sam Worthington, Richard Roxburgh, Anna Torv again, um, <laughs> and s- several others, many others, many others. Uh, and it, it charts the impact of the 1920 bushfire season on a broad range of characters in interlocking stories. Mm. I don't think I've seen a drama that comes with a warning like this one does yeah. Before each episode, not for the usual broad content warnings like language violence or sex, but just for the subject matter, it says you're yeah. about to watch a drama about the nine twenty nineteen twenty twenty bushfires i think you know be be warned yeah, yeah, I think
1: because it's in such fresh memory like I think mm. that you know whenever we're approaching historical moments um you know they, they wouldn't necessarily unless there's like um I mean, they would sometimes have warnings as far as a content warning, like you were saying, like violence or um, some upsetting scenes. But this is so different because the trauma is so fresh. Well, it's interesting you say that.
0: Yeah, for so many people. And I think that's key because I actually don't think that it's so fresh anymore. I think that the pandemic has totally usurped. What should still be mm. a, a topic of conversation on a daily basis, and
2: pushed, it. yeah. pushed it down the down the, um, really the memory has. kind of mm. schedule. It for has, us bit, and yeah. I, and
0: I think I feel like personally, I, I feel like the climate is is so much more pressing than the pandemic, yeah. and it's te- it's 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 a sad state of affairs that we that that has lost the headlines. You know,
1: I, I think you're right, Lisa. Actually, it's maybe because I was researching this series and we're mm. watching it, of course, this week for the show, but. It took me straight back there. I, I got reminded of, all, of exactly what it felt like to be uh-huh. to be wearing a mask every day because the you know just looking outside and your clothes being covered, but in soot, in soot. and it,
0: everything stinks. Yeah. I think this is what I think is wonderful about this series. You mentioned that there's been a bunch of documentaries made about mm. the, the the 2019 yeah. bushfires, which is wonderful. But something that drama can do that um, that documentary can't is just using those properties of performance, of subtext, yeah. of um, narrative structure to really take you into the heart of it. And that scene that you played, the clip at the start of this discussion, um, that was a scene in a car where there are two young firefighters um, entering what they think is just another routine fire yeah. and then very quickly realising that they're in really serious danger. And it's terrifying and it's shot so well, I, I thought. Think, it's yeah, gripping, you know. But it's also
1: it's also owing to um, paid Lachard and um, Scanlan's performances. like they are so strong on screen, and I think there's a beautiful naturalism across the entire cast, the way that they they just deliver these lines. And I heard one comment about the about fires saying, this is really slow moving. and I just thought it is, but I think necessarily slow, necessarily so, because to take you straight, I mean the first episode does take you straight into the action. But there's so much um, grief to unpack and and kind of the far-reaching um, damage that this has done as well on not just the land and the animals and people's homes, but, like, that deep psychological scarring coming from having mm. your entire home communities just wiped out.
0: But this is, the, this is the other genius of this series for me is that it's it's essentially a disaster series, mm. you know, or a disaster movie told in small parts, you know, in self-contained parts. Where we know the ending. <laughs> well, well, but that's – no, but that's the thing. I think that the, the real drama happens after. So, you mm. know, it's not like, you know, um, the day after tomorrow or your um, Armageddon-type things – it's all the drama is about leading up to yeah. the event. It's all yeah. about mm. what, what's going to happen when the tidal wave hits. This is about the the um, devastation happening in the background of the human drama, so it, it's either we're either experiencing it in the aftermath or it's just burning just mm. beyond the horizon, mm. and, and it's how these people are dealing with their relationships and their I lives. Think mm. For
2: something, I mean, how do you, how do you uh, chart this a, a fire, an event like this? that um, is so all-encompassing and huge, Where do, how do you bring the human sort of scale into it, the human yeah. size of it, because that's um, the only way to emotionally engage with it. It is. Uh, they, really. Yeah. They I think have, that's absolutely the right approach. Yeah.
1: That they,
3: take.
1: they also bring up something that I think is true of the pandemic in that if it – both of the both the bushfires and the pandemic have really brought to the fore the cracks in our society and the certain characters within this series that um, there's one man who's struggling with um, methadone, you know, he's a heroin addict and he, so he needs his daily methadone and you've got um, a marriage that was kind of a bit tense and you've got um, a daughter-in-law who has this difficult relationship with her in-laws and, I don't know, it's just a... There's a lot going on in this and just like the fact of what a crisis does to people and a community and it does, there are moments where it really brings them together but there's also moments in which people are just brought further apart and you just realise the privilege that that comes to the fore, people who are able to get out, who have a car, who have family, who have means, you know, systems of support around them and those that don't as well. That really stood out for me personally.
2: I, I think it's important to note all the characters have got enough going on in their lives to sustain a drama already. <laughs> <laughs> and, then we, and then we throw in this, this disaster, which is completely, um, you know, unfathomable, the scale of it. Uh, and that's, I think that's when it's at its strength, when there's, there's already enough happening and you just watch that boil over. I think the third, third episode in particular um, was the most convincing for me uh, so far. Mm. Um,
0: was that was that the Anakokinos directed one? What was that, that one?
2: That was... Or was that the
0: Anatov one? Because oh, no, that It Anna was with Anatov in it and yeah. it was written
2: by Mira Fuchs. So oh. I wanna, um, mm. I, there was a stronger script of the bunch, I think.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, for, for me it was episode two, actually. I, I, I loved, I, I think it was episode two with Anna Kokonos' direction of um, Miranda Otto and oh, yeah. um, Richard Roxburgh. Richard oh, Aren't they perfect They screen. were. They, those performances need to be awarded. Mm-hmm. They were wonderful. But um, but the episode that you're talking about, Will, is that with uh, Anatov of wanting to protect her home? Is that the Yeah, 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 yeah. I
2: just thought that scene of her uh, sitting in the house mm. as she's getting the electricity cuts out and she's getting radio warnings to evacuate, evacuate, and she's looking at the suitcases. And it's cutting back from her to the suitcases to her. Yeah. And that was just the single most
0: dramatic and the, the, the Do- I got so
1: stressed watching that.
0: Well. The Do- well, it was very Hitchcockian yeah. yeah. in the way it was, was shot, actually. I thought that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. He really drew on the birds there because mm. it was like these birds oh, the hitting birds the windows. So, that were like yeah. the harbingers of doom yeah. coming in and she's not ta- heeding the warnings of nature, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, a message for us all, really. Oh. Yeah. 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 It, it's so tightly wound. That-
2: and cutting to um, Mark Leonard Winter, uh, who plays the um, the methadone dependent yeah. recovering addict he was that you excellent. mentioned flick. Just the two of them, yeah. and all than him. Yeah, just two very different positions, two very different um, situations that they're in, and they're just both. Absolutely compelling, I and, and also both, episode for me.
1: both remarkably alone in their own ways. It's true, mm. and they despite, and like as you
0: said before, they sit in in different stratospheres of the mm. social ladder. Yeah, um, and, and the, the the young man who's on methadone. That there's a scene where he's trying to convince some people to take Aww. a back back road because he needs his fix, and it's just de- it's devastating. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's a family, you know, and um, and him having to lie to them is yeah. just heartbreaking. And, and these wonderful things, I mean, these wonderful moments, these tragic moments, um, yeah, play out so well against that against that backdrop. And, and backdrop, backdrop. Beg, beg your pardon, but we don't lose. Sight of the overarching problem somehow. It's it's amazing. It's
1: it's truly masterful, and I think it works so well because it is an anthology, so it allows for each story to have its own depth and context and time with us. Um, If you're interested, Fires is currently streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R.
2: Triple R.
1: You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. We spoke with the director of New Gold Mountain, the exceptionally talented Cory Chen. We reviewed the 80s newsroom drama The Newsreader And we finished up with the anthology series Fires about the devastating black summer bushfires that ripped through Australia the other year. If you missed those and you'd like to check them out, you can listen back online on rrr.org.au. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. A big thank you to Corrie Chen. Her show New Gold Mountain is currently available to stream on SBS On Demand and the Newsreader and Fires are both streaming on ABC I view. Uh, thank you to Morty Osborne for editing our podcast, Carl Chapman for paneling and producing assistance, and to my guest reviewers Lisa Kavarchevich and Will Cox. Thanks so much. Thanks for having
0: us. Thank <laughs>
3: you.
0: Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R.